0: Good morning. You ever watched the game show $100,000 Pyramid? Anybody familiar with that game show? Many years ago it was $25,000 Pyramid and was hosted by Dick Clark. They've upped the stakes since then and now it's $100,000 Pyramid hosted by Michael Strahan. If you've ever seen the show then you know that the premise is you get a B-list celebrity to go along with a normal human being like me and uh, one of them gives clues while the other one tries to figure out what it is that they're describing. One word clue, and so if the category were like things in a restaurant, then the person giving the clues would say something like uh, uh, food, waiter, table, that kind of thing, right? So I want to do that this morning for just a few minutes, okay? Humor me. I'm not a celebrity, and you're not going to get $100,000, but humor me, okay? So I'm going to, here's the clues. Sweet. Sour. Bread and butter, gherkin, dill. You getting it? Types of pickles, right? So let's move from the game show realm to the culinary arts realm. Do you know how you get pickles? So pickles apparently come from cucumbers. You may have known that. So you take a cucumber and you soak it in a mixture of spices and vinegar and water and over an extended period of time, it becomes pickled. And at this point, you're saying, Chris, what in the world does this have to do with sexuality? And I'm telling you, it has everything to do with it. Everything, because many in our culture, many in the church, in fact, have become pickled. This world is a brine, and we're soaking in it. The world is a brine, and Many people, including Christians, are soaking in it. And as a result, our way of thinking, our way of talking, our way of acting is affected and flavored by the brine. Even Christians are being pickled. Maybe they're not soaking in the brine of the world, but they're acting much like the world in the way that they react to the pickling process. Either you're being pickled by the world or you're being pickled by the Lord. Either you are being discipled by Jesus or you're being discipled by culture. Either you're soaking in the brine of worldliness or you're soaking in the brine of godliness. At the forefront of this pickling is sexuality. Now, this morning, we're starting a series that will actually continue on Sunday nights. So I hope that you'll be back for that over the next few weeks. Blake and I will actually be teaming up to deliver this series on this most important topic, sexuality. Some might say, well, why talk about this? Why are we talking about sex and sexuality in the church? Folks, have you noticed that everybody in the world's talking about it? Every single person in our world, I mean, it saturates everything that, that happens around us. Our world is flavored by it. And we're going to exercise our right to remain silent as the church and as Christians? I'm sorry, but that's just dumb. We've got to be talking about this. As Howard Hendricks stated, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. It's time that we join the conversation. But before we go any further, I want to lay down some ground rules, okay? Okay. These are just some basic tenets that I want us to adhere to as we go throughout this series. And the first one is this. This is not one of those sermons that they need to hear, okay? This is not a politically charged series. This is not for the opposition. This isn't a soapbox sermon. This series, this sermon is for all of us. Secondly, this sermon and this series is going to be rooted in love. We've talked a lot about love recently. At some point, it's time to stop talking and start doing. And so we're going to exercise love and compassion during this series. Love should be our identifying mark. To be right biblically is important, but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so, as Christians, they will know us by our love, and so that is our birthmark, and that's what we will exhibit during this series. So please, no angry amens. The goal here is not to take a stand or to put people in their place. The goal is conviction and conversion, and we have no hope of that if we're not loving. The lost are victims, they're not the enemy. Along those same lines, my desire is to be gentle and gracious, not angry and anxious. That's one thing that you'll notice about our pickled society. Everybody's mad, everybody's angry at something. You can cut the vitriol with a knife, and there are Christians who are very unchristian in their response to the brining process. Look, no one's mind, as far as I know, was ever changed with a meme on Facebook, okay? So let's just stop that. Let's quit it with the hot takes. Let's be gentle and gracious. Let's be Jesus. I'll be honest with you, I'm angry about some of this, and I know you are as well. Paul even said, be angry and yet do not sin. So you can be angry, just don't sin. The problem is that very few of us can be angry without sinning, right? And before you say, well, Jesus got angry, he flipped over tables, you're not Jesus. And very few, if any of you, can be angry in a righteous way. We typically sin when we get angry. So you can be angry, just stop short of sinning. Guardrails have been put in place by God, not to oppress us, but to protect us. So we preach the truth in love with the hope that it leads to healing and freedom. And finally, let me say this. This series is going to be based on God's definition of sexuality. There are a lot of definitions of sexuality. Only one matters. God's view. And that's the view that we're going to take. Sex isn't shameful. It isn't dirty like we're going to talk about tonight. There's two extremes. Sex is a god or sex is gross. And and neither one of those are true. It's not dirty. It's not taboo like a lot of things. Man took this good gift and perverted it. Twisted and contorted it. However, God designed sex and sexuality, therefore, we look to the designer and we follow the manufacturer's guidelines. Our culture tries to sell us on a false dichotomy. Our culture tries to tell us this is, this is a, a fight that is framed with biology versus theology. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because when you look at God's divine design, biology and theology connect perfectly. They go together. They go hand in hand. And so that's what we're going to be looking at throughout this series. Remember these words from Paul. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul basically says, don't be pickled by the world. Don't be discipled by culture. Rome wasn't that unlike our culture, in that not only was sexual immorality and all its forms being engaged in, it was also being applauded and celebrated. The Bible, though, insists that our bodies and what we do with them are important to God. I've mentioned this over and over again, and I stand by it, because too many times in the church, we tend to think that our bodies are disposable that our bodies are just the shell that contains our soul. It's like Tupperware. The body's the Tupperware, and the soul is the contents that really matter. That's not true. I don't know where that originated. Many people point back to Plato and to ancient Greek philosophy, but that's not what the Bible presents. The Bible presents your body as important. Body and soul is all one thing in the Jewish culture especially. They believed, and all of it came together, and all of it meant that it was all important. So it should be important to us too. You're going to have a body in eternity. I don't know what it's going to look like, So your body is not just a container for something more important. Your body is not disposable. It's not trash. And Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The creation story is a sacred intimate union of theology and sexuality. Our human sexuality is rooted in being created with a body and with a God-given desire for relationships where we can know and be known. Sin distorts this beautiful design by God. It twists and contorts the divine design so it looks like one of those funhouse mirrors, but the result is brokenness rather than intimacy. In Jesus Christ, we come full circle. In him, we see what, who, and how God designed us to be. In a culture so preoccupied with sex and sexual freedom in all its forms being celebrated, even defended as a human right, Paul steps in in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and reminds us that we are called to show and tell the good news of Jesus, which includes God's design for sexuality. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, here's what it reads. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe this? Because this means everything. Do you believe that God created through an act or that everything you see came about through an accident? Because that's what this all boils down to. Either you believe that God created and that all of creation comes from an act or an accident. If you believe that everything around you comes from chance, then you're going to live your life differently. Your life is not going to be lived with the same principles and ethics that somebody who has a biblical worldview lives their life. You're going to just live it up until you die because this is all that there is. When it's over, you become worm dirt, right? So why does it surprise us when someone who doesn't believe in God has a very different take on these things than we do? It shouldn't, really. Even the atheist believes many times that it's right, to do the right thing because it's just the right thing to do. So they believe in morals and ethics as well many times. It shouldn't shock us when someone who doesn't share our worldview doesn't think like us. But a biblically based approach to life should always be our concern. And maybe we need to exercise a little more patience instead of getting so upset and spitting venom. Maybe we should be a little more patient and tolerant of those who don't agree with us. And maybe instead of getting all worked up in a lather, we should work to soften hearts with love and truth. What lens are you looking through? Again, that's what this boils down to. Do you believe that God created the heavens and the earth? The Bible informs your beliefs and your behaviors, and it starts right here in Genesis 1.1. Do you believe it? And if so, then what's true of creation in general is true of sexuality, spiritually and specifically. The question focuses on design, not desire. It focuses on purpose, not preference. And it focuses on truth over your feelings. Skip down to verse 27 of Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This passage tells us two very important truths about God and humans. We were created by God, which means that every single one of us has value. You were stamped in the very image of God, therefore you intrinsically have value. And secondly, God made us male and female. He made us very good. Now, all questions about sexuality and identity can be answered right here in Genesis 1. Sexuality is a constitutive part of human nature, of human experience, shaped by God's will for his creation. If it's not, then what's our standard? Where do we go? This is not, however, the singular defining aspect of human identity. That's what our culture wants to teach. Our culture pushes that your sexuality says everything about you. That at your core, you are a sexual being. And therefore, your entire identity is wrapped up in your sexuality. That's not true. Your identity is all wrapped up, it's all tied up, it's all tangled up in Jesus. That is your identity. Culture would tell you your identity is all wrapped up, it's all tied up in your sexuality. The Bible teaches something different. You know, Jim here is not a a teacher. That's what he does. But you're not a teacher. You are a Christian, right? James is not a pharmacist. He's a Christian. You are not what you do. You are not your profession or your career. Your identity is found in Christ. And that supersedes everything else. Your sexuality is a component part of who you are. And I would say it's an important part. It's just not the only important part. And it's certainly not everything. I take my cues from Him, from God, from Jesus, which means that how I view everything, including sexuality, is through a spiritual lens. Let's just walk through the creation step, uh, the creation account step-by-step step for just a second, okay? First, you notice that God created. Our understanding of gender and sexuality, begins with the foundational truth that God created everything. Our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. God is not random. God brings reality into existence. So reality and human experience are not self-creating or self-directing. They're not self-constituting. God orders all aspects of reality, including sexuality and gender. Gender and sexuality are not evolutionary quirks. They both find their origin in the God who designed them. So God created. Secondly, God created who? Well, He created us. God is the creator of humanity. Therefore, He has every right to call all the shots. He speaks authoritatively over our lives. This means that sexuality and gender are not flexible. They're not plastic. They're not bendable to our will or preference. If we want to flourish in holiness then we must align our lives with God's creative will. God created, God created us, and God created us in His image. Can we not assume that sexuality and gender contribute to the entirety of what it means to bear God's image? I think we absolutely can. Humanity existing in male and female versions implies that our sexuality and gender contribute to our overall image and purpose for which we were created. To be made in God's image means that no part of our existence is purposeless or irrelevant. God had intent for everything that he created. And then God created us male and female. Gender and gender identity are embodied Realities. Feelings don't override truth. Now, that doesn't mean that feelings aren't important. That doesn't mean that feelings should not be considered. It doesn't mean that we should bash someone's feelings with a Bible. It simply means that according to the biblical record, gender is fixed, it is objectively known. There is no mystery here, there is a substantive differentiation between male and female. And this differentiation can be seen in God's intricate design right down to the chromosomal, anatomical, reproductive, psychological, and emotional level. One primary reason for this differentiation is to make procreation possible. We'll talk more about that tonight. And then finally, notice that God created us male and female for one another. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. In essence, he said, go have sex and fill the earth with little icons. Go be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with other little people that bear my image like you. Fill the earth with people that look like you, but more importantly, that look like me. God's design was for a purpose. And again, we'll talk more about that later, but let me just say this. As male and female beings made in the image of God, we were designed for a particular purpose and it's a purpose that cannot be fulfilled sexually between a man and a man or a woman and a woman and a purpose that was meant to be fulfilled in a permanent, monogamous, exclusive relationship that was meant to be a covenant as well. One of the hardest things that I ever had to do as a coach was cut a player. But because resources were limited, at some point you had to dwindle the number down if it was basketball to about 10 or 12, 15, something like that. There were only so many uniforms, only so much room on the bus. I mean, you had to make those cuts. Plus, you knew that some of them were never going to get to play And so you had to sit down and have a conversation with them and tell them that they were basically not good enough to make the team. Now, that's not how I presented it. I would never present it that way. I was much kinder and softer. But that's what they're thinking. I knew that's what they were thinking. You're telling me that I am not good enough. And it just reiterates the fact that some things are hard to say and some things are hard to hear. And certainly that's true when it comes to these discussions about sexuality. Some things, depending on the person, are hard to hear. Some things, depending on who it is that's saying them, are hard to say. Now, we have no problem shouting at the television when we see God's authority being ignored or people thumbing their nose at God. We have no problem yelling and screaming and, and being irate when someone is, is, is passing off God as if he's some mythical you know, cosmic being that uh, is like a unicorn that doesn't really exist. We have no problem getting angry and getting all worked up when someone tries to force Certain beliefs on us that we know are unscriptural. But then you've got the family member or the friend who loves God but still struggles with same sex attraction. Or you've got the young lady that was in my youth group when I was a youth minister that struggled with depression because she really felt more like a he. And eventually she took her own life. You know, it, it's easy to be angry and to, to, to stand up for truth when it's kind of at arm's length. It's a whole lot tougher when it's in your own backyard, in your own household. So we got to be careful in how we handle this. Some things are hard to say and some things are hard to hear. You know, there's, there's other slices of the pie here. You know, the anger that we see on TV and and getting worked up about, you know, the politics of it, that's one slice of the pie, but there's other slices here. And at some point, we've got to move past the, well, you, you better not do it or God's going to send you to hell. Sharing the gospel means involving ourselves in the mess of people's lives. It's saying hard things that are hard to hear. Being sincere with our love and concern. Some things are are hard to change. So, you know, you have a tall task many times, but that task is made even taller when we make snide remarks or when we share those hateful memes on Facebook or, or, or make a post that's not sensitive to those who may be struggling, when we allow ourselves to be soured by the brine. So here are a few truths that I think we need to get straight from the beginning. Truths that I think we need to learn first before we teach others number one sexuality cannot be separated from spirituality that may be hard for some to hear but it's true this is precisely what our culture has done though and the results speak for themselves you want a testimony as to what happens when you separate sexuality from spirituality i'll give it to you look around you because despite what proponents say it's not working the world is an utter mess it's in chaos because they have failed to go to the manufacturer, to the divine designer, to see what he has to say about the subject. And so we have brokenness around every turn. Hebrews thirteen four says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Here's the basic gist. God has a design. Anything outside of that design is going to bring destruction And dysfunction. God has a design and He expects sex to function the way He designed it. Here's number two sex is not casual, it's purposeful. And I realize this goes against the grain of culture because culture would like you to believe that sex is casual, that it's all about you, it's all about fulfilling your own desires and wants. But God is not random. If God designed it, there was a reason for it. Casual sex causes casualties. When we disconnect sex from its purpose, it brings brokenness. And we see it in our culture. Sex has been disconnected from childbearing and family. It has been disconnected from emotion and relationship. It has been disconnected from people. So what was meant to be a bonding experience between two people is now taking place on a screen. Sex has been reduced to just simply an act of pleasure when it was designed to be so so much more and we'll talk more about that tonight and number three sexuality and gender are not in-house arguments the bible cast a vision for sexuality and gender that is not uniquely and merely christian the design for gender and sexuality found in scripture is for all created beings all that were created in the image of god which includes everybody even if the guardrails that God has set forth are not the easiest or the most natural to adhere to, we are obligated to live by them nonetheless. And the Bible sees sexuality and gender as creational truths and realities that determine the success of the home and society. So this is not an exclusively Christian epistemology. We cannot take the tact here that You have your belief, and I have mine, and we'll just have to agree to disagree. Now, being a disciple, making and growing disciples, sharing the gospel, is the cure for this debilitating virus. And while there is a mass confusion in our world, even widespread rebellion against the designer's authority, that doesn't change our message and our mission. I want to close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of of our God. I want to ask you this question. Who went to these people? Because somebody did. Because Paul says, such were some of you. You used to be identified with your sin. And by the way, homosexuality isn't the number one only sin on this list. There's others, right? We got to be careful not to treat it like it's the only biggest sin, right? Somebody went to these people. Maybe they walked into church one Sunday. And the church in Corinth embraced them and said, I'm so glad you're here. Let us help you. Maybe they heard a sermon and they decided, you know, to reach out for help. But somebody studied with these people. Somebody converted these people. Would you have gone to them? Will you go to the homosexual? Will you go to the effeminate, to the adulterer, to the thief? Let me ask you this. Church, are homosexuals welcome here? Are fornicators welcome here? Is the adulterer welcome here? Or for that matter, is the gossip welcome here? Is is the addict welcome here at Oldham Lane? Shake your head yes, because that's the right response. Do they have to clean up their act before they come through these doors? Shake your head no, because that's the correct response. We got to take people where they're at. We just don't leave them there. If you have to have yourself completely cleaned up before you come through these doors, and every one of you has to leave, of all the compliments that Jesus received, the greatest, in my opinion, was meant to be a criticism. You know what it was? He was a friend of sinners. The religious leader said that as a criticism, but isn't that the greatest compliment? He was a friend of sinners. I want this church to be known as a friend of sinners. I want you to be known as a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for salvation, for the church, for a family that we can call our own. God, there's so much going on around us. There's a pickling process that is discouraging, that angers us at times. But ultimately, God, may we see those around us who are succumbing to this process. May we see them as people in need of rescue. And may we reach out. May we always be about the mission, delivering the message. We know what it's done for us. May we show others what it can do for them. We love you, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Let us help you this morning. If you have a need, Jim is going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.